passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, many of you may remember uh, the events from all the way back in March of this year. Um, strong winds blew the, the barge uh, the ever given off course while it was traveling through the Suez Canal. And uh, it was this massive cargo ship that ran aground in the shallow water of the Suez Canal, actually blocked the entire Suez Canal and created this shipping traffic jam, for lack of a better term, that just really halted global shipping for six days. And, and I, uh, I actually did some research this past week to look at the damage. Now, there was no damage or loss of life, but the damage to our global economy was astonishing to me. One economist estimated that after 450 cargo ships were backed up, waiting for this ship to get ungrounded, $9.6 billion every day went down the drain, wasted, waiting for this ship to get unstuck. To put it in... <laughs> In, in different terms, that means $6.7 million every minute was wasted while this ship was stuck. Now, shallow ground can, of course, cause some sort of financial or economic damage, but it's not just economic damage. In, in 2012, there was this Italian cruise ship that run aground by hitting an under, underwater rock, and it sunk, and, and dozens of people lost their lives, dozens more were injured. And anyone who has been boating before knows the danger of hitting a submerged object. It can cost you your life. It can cost you so much. And so it's no surprise that the image of a shipwreck is a very common one in the Bible throughout history of what it looks like to, to face the dangers in life. And that's certainly the case in this morning's passage in the book of Jude. Uh, we're, we're continuing in Jude this morning, Jude 11 through 13. Jude is this book that is written to spur the church on to preserve the faith, to contend for the faith. In, face, in the face of those who are inside the church and would twist the message of the gospel to their own ends. And really, that's, that's the drumbeat of the entire book of Jude. Every single passage that we have looked at so far, every single passage we will look at in this book, marches to the drumbeat that says, this is a call for you to preserve the faith, the true faith, for both the faithful and the faithless. And this morning's passage is, is no different for us. We find ourselves in the middle of this section of Jude, verses 5 through uh, 20, or 17, 23. It really depends on how you break it up. That's the, the heart of Jude's message. And here, we find ourselves in verses 5 through 10, there was what we would call a first sermon that Jude gives about the dangers of false teaching. And now we're entering into his second sermon, 11 through 16, focused on the dangers that are facing the church by those who would twist or change the true faith that has been handed down to us. This morning, here's what I want us to focus on. As we look at this passage, I want us to just 
take home this one truth that is very, very clear from this passage. It's simply this. Be on guard against those who would distort the gospel through their words and through their deeds. If if, if there's only one thing you take away from this passage, I hope it's this. Be on guard against those who would distort the gospel through their words and through their deeds. Jude wants us to know that there are people who bear the name Christian and yet will deny him, both through their words and through their deeds. So be on guard. And that starts with being on guard against that type of attitude in our own hearts. Now Jude makes this message really clear for us by first giving us three pictures from the Old Testament of those who deny the faith, those who deny the gospel, and then after that he gives us six insights into what exactly these people are really like, what it's really like for someone who denies their faith with their words and with their actions. So that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to jump into this morning's text, but before we do that, I want to just take a a brief moment uh, to define a term that I think will be helpful for us this morning, and that is uh, this term apocalyptic literature. Now, this was a type of, of, it's a genre of writing that was really, really popular in the first century among Jewish circles. They would all, all uh, many, many different authors would use apocalyptic literature as, as a way of proving their point or describing something. And I think a lot of times when we hear the word apocalypse, we can think of the end times. We can think of what's coming at the very end of the world. And sometimes that's the case, but more accurately, the word apocalypse literally just means, it's translated as revealing. It's something that is revealed to us. And so when we see apocalyptic literature, something that Jude relies on very heavily, we should recognize that this is him using this this key type of language to reveal things as God sees them. That his imagery here may be confusing to us, and yet he's using it to reveal things to us the way things actually are because that's the way that God sees them. Now maybe this, uh, these two pictures will be helpful in, in describing apocalyptic literature. Uh, this, this past week, I took a picture of the vertical blinds in my office. And uh, let's go ahead and, and throw those up, Will. Uh, what, these, uh, what these, not these apocalyptic vines. These are not apocalyptic... These are not apocalyptic blinds, just so you know. These are vertical blinds, all right? And I decided to take a picture of them from straight on, all right? Now, I took a picture looking at them completely perpendicular to them, and this is the picture that I got. And when you look at that, you can't see much at all, right? You can maybe see a sliver right here, a sliver of green, but but more than that, all you see is blinds. All you see are these vertical blinds. But if you take two steps to the right, you will get a a new perspective. And so I did that. I stepped two steps to the right, and this is the picture that I took. Let's go ahead and throw that one up. Now you can see, you can begin to see with this new perspective what is behind those blinds. You begin with this new perspective to see what is actually there. You're no longer just seeing the blinds, but you're seeing what's behind them. And this is, a, I think, a, a helpful way of looking at apocalyptic literature. That some of the language is very confusing, and yet it gives us this new perspective to see things the way that God himself sees things. And that's really helpful for us, I think, as we look at the book of Jude, because when the language seems confusing to us, 
This type of language takes two steps to the right and gives us this new perspective on the way things actually are. And Jude, as he's using all of this imagery here, he's revealing to to the first century church as well as to us that there might be these people in your midst who seem really impressive, who seem like they have their lives together, who seem like they have the gospel and they are being faithful to it. And yet if you take two steps to the right, you'll begin to see things the way that God himself sees them. And that's what Jude does in this morning's passage, both by using the Old Testament and then also using this really figurative language in verses 12 through 13. He wants us to see that we have to be on guard against those who would distort the gospel, including ourselves. With that in mind, let's, uh, let's jump into the book of Jude. Uh, please follow along as I start uh, reading aloud in verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their foam, the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So Jude starts this sermon in verses 11 through 16, first with these three pictures from the Old Testament of those who distort the faith, those who distort the gospel. The first one he starts with is Cain. Notice what he says again. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you, can, you know the story of Cain. Cain is found in Genesis chapter 4. Over the course of time, Cain and his younger brother Abel, they both brought offerings to God. And while Abel's offering was accepted, Cain's was not. And Genesis 4 isn't explicit about the reason why, but I think we can, we can surmise why Cain's offering was not accepted and Abel's was. Go ahead and look at Genesis 4, verses 3 and 4. It says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruit of the ground. Excuse me, an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now notice what that text says. Let's go ahead and keep that up for a few moments. Here we see there's a key difference between what kind of offering Cain brings and what type of offering that Abel brings. And the key isn't the difference between bringing fruits and bringing an animal. Instead, the key is, notice that it says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. And yet it tells us that Cain did not bring the first fruits, but instead just brought an offering of fruits. It seems like there's this heart issue with Cain. In the Old Testament, you're always told to bring the first fruits or the firstborn as a part of your offering, and that's not what Cain does. Here, Cain goes through the motions. He doesn't bring the best of his offering. Instead, he brings this half-hearted offering of fruits to God. It's not a true act of devotion. And that's clear in his response in verse 5. After God does not receive, does not accept his offering, notice what the text tells us. But Cain, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. And so, 
Cain was very angry and his face fell. So Cain brings this half-hearted offering to God and God sees through the facade of this offering and Cain's response is anger. He's upset that God saw through what he was doing. Or God saw through what he was, he was doing here with this offering. And yet, God remains merciful. Verse 5, we see that God actually, not, not verse 5, excuse me, verses 6 and 7, God intervenes. God speaks to Cain. God doesn't have to speak to Cain. Notice what he says. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So here's the heart of God's revealed word to Cain. We have explicit words from God to Cain here. And he's saying, be careful of those sinful desires in case they rule over you. And he tells Cain what it looks like to follow God. He also tells him what it looks like to not follow God. And he tells Cain, this is what it looks like to be obedient to me. In contrast, this is what it looks like to not be obedient to me. God has given Cain this very precious gift. He's told him explicitly what it looks like to be a follower of the Lord. How does Cain respond? Well, if we're familiar with the book of Genesis, we know the answer. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain is given the word of God, and yet in his actions here in verse 8, we see that he rejects the word of God. Cain becomes infamous throughout human history as the first murderer, and yet that murder starts with a refusal to listen to and to obey God's word. That's our first picture here. Cain is this picture of refusing to listen to God's word. He refuses to listen to God's word. And I think that's what Jude has in mind here when he's talking about these people in the midst of the church that are walking in the way of Cain. He's not saying that these are people who distort the gospel by killing other people. He's giving this category to us to understand that these people who look like they have everything together in their lives, on the outside, on the inside, stubbornly refuse to listen to God's word. Cain is their forefather. This term walking is a very common word in the Bible used to refer to a way of life. Paul is talking to the, uh, the Christians in Colossae and he says, hey, I want you to live in such a way to follow and honor Jesus. And he says it this way, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so also walk in him. David reminds us in the Psalms of the blessedness of those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. It's this common term in the Bible to refer to a pattern of life. 
a way of living your life. Jude isn't referring to those who now and then will succumb to temptation. They know the good that they're supposed to do, and yet in a moment of temptation, a moment of weakness, they reject God's word and, and, and later on repent over that. He's referring to these people who live this life persistently, day after day, knowing what God's word has said, and instead rejecting it. We distort the gospel when we follow in Cain's footsteps, when we who have received the word of God refuse to listen to it. And Jude reminds his church and he reminds us today to look out for these people. He reminds us not to be these types of people, to not walk in the way of Cain. He gives us a second picture from the Old Testament, that of Balaam. He says, Woe to them, for they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Jude's message here, I, I think, is, is relatively unambiguous for us. These are people who have lost themselves for the sake of gain, for the sake of greed, just like Balaam did in the Old Testament. What's Balaam's error here? Well, the story of Balaam is found in Numbers 22, 23, and 24, and then it actually spills into Numbers 25 as well. Balaam is this prophet who's hired in the Old Testament by the king of Moab. And the king of Moab hires him because he knows that he's this prophet, and he says, hey, I want you to curse the people of Israel for me. The king of Moab is, is threatened by the people of Israel. He sees how numerous they are. He sees how blessed they are by God. And he says, if I want to protect my own, I'm going to have you, who have this in with God, I'm going to have you go ahead and curse them for me so that way my own future will be secure. Now, interestingly, Balaam refuses at first. Balaam even says that he's not going to do this for the sake of gain. Notice what he says in Numbers 22. Though Balak, the king of Moab, were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. It's a pretty upright response, right? Later on in, in Numbers, God eventually tells Balaam to go with the Moabites but only to say what God commands him. And three times, Balaam attempts to curse the people of Israel, and three times he actually blesses them instead. Now, the king of Moab is, is paying good money for this, to get these people to be cursed, and instead they are getting blessed, and so he gets upset. And, it, and the text seems to indicate that he and Balaam part ways. And it seems like at the end of Numbers 24, the Balaam era, uh, narrative actually comes to an end. But that's not actually what happens. Something, something different happens in Numbers chapter 25. The people of Israel, they're camping not all that far from the people of Moab when this is what the Bible describes taking place. The people began to whore after the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So Numbers chapter 25 tells us that in spite of all of these blessings, in spite of all of these provisions from God, the Israelites actually forsake God so that they can go and follow Baal and the other gods of the Moabites because they liked being around. They liked the idea of, of 
fellowship with and, and sleeping with the people of Moab. And so they changed their gods for the sake of pleasure. And God's wrath turns against the people of Israel because they've forsaken him. And this leads to judgment. Now you might be saying, well, what exactly does this have to do with Balaam? Well, a couple chapters later in the book of Numbers, we actually see that this was all Balaam's plan. That Balaam is the one who thought of this idea of, hey, if I can't get the people, if I can't get God to curse the people of Israel, I know what the Bible says. I know what God's word says about how they're supposed to live. I know that they are supposed to remain faithful to him. I know that they are not supposed to worship any other gods. And so if I can't get God to curse them, I'll get them to curse themselves by following the gods of the Moabites. Numbers chapter 31. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Do you see what Balaam's error is here? Here's this man who very, very clearly, explicitly knows what God's word says. In fact, the the Balaam narrative actually starts with him talking about how he can't curse these people because they are God's chosen people. And yet, Jude tells us that his heart so longs for treasure, he's so greedy, that he finds a way to get around the word of God so that he can accumulate wealth. His focus here isn't on the word of God, on being faithful to the word of God. It's on pleasure. It's on filling his pockets. It's greed. It's gain. Same is true in Jude's church. Same is true in the church today. There are people that are so bent on greed, they're so bent on pleasure, on their desires, that the word of God is just an afterthought. These people are are peddling a false gospel just so that way they can satisfy their true God, which is their own desires. And the story, the picture of Balaam, is this picture of people who are being ruled by greed or being ruled by their desires. This is one of the greatest dangers facing the church in the developing world today. Uh, This past week, I I met someone uh, who was telling me about this time he was preaching in a developing nation, and and, um, uh, it was in Liberia. And uh, this this man said that he was introduced in front of this church, and uh, he was introduced this way. Welcome, we'd like you to welcome Jim, that's not his real name, but we'd like you to welcome Jim, who is rich because he obeys God. That if you obey God, then you will also be rich, that because your true God is wealth. Years ago, I was teaching in, in East Africa. I just got done talking, preaching on uh, the, the cost of discipleship, this charge that Jesus gives us to pick up our cross and follow him. And then right after I get done, this person stands up to share a testimony in the church, and he, he starts bragging about how he has... Uh, been 
blessed with this all-expense-paid vacation cruise around Europe because he prayed hard enough. This is a deadly disease in the church. And at least the people in Jude's day were honest with themselves. They didn't care about obeying God because they knew that their true God was their stomach. I think Jude's picture, his description here is profound because it describes what takes place when you forsake following Jesus for the sake of greed, for the sake of pleasure. Jude tells us that that these people, they actually abandon themselves, that they've lost themselves, that these are people who might look spiritual on the outside, but they've given themselves to their base desires, that in the war in their own hearts, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self, the kingdom of self has won. And they might look spiritual on the outside, but their true God will trump all. Jude gives us one final picture from the Old Testament, Korah's rebellion. The story of Korah is found a few chapters before the story of Balaam in the book of Numbers. And in fact, the fact that these aren't found in chronological order, it's not Cain, then Korah, then Balaam, shows us that this is actually the pinnacle, the the chief concern of what Jude is saying here. And the language he uses bears that out as well. Notice at the beginning of verse 11, he says that these people walk in the way of Cain. And then he says that they abandon themselves into this picture, to this way of Balaam's desire, and now they will be destroyed, or they are destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Woe to them, for they perished in Korah's rebellion. Numbers 16 tells us about this Levite named Korah who led this rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Korah was a distant cousin of Aaron, the high priest. He plays this important role in the religion of Israel in that day, but he wasn't a priest. And he never would be a priest because God in all of his sovereignty had entrusted the priesthood to the family of Aaron for generations. And that doesn't sit well with Korah. In fact, Korah thinks that he has just as much right to, as, as Aaron to go into the holy place, to go before God, and he actually tells him as such. Numbers 16, They assembled to get themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Ironically, he's misquoting Exodus chapter 19. He says, hey, we're all God's people. We've all been entrusted with this gift. Why does he get to do it and not me? Moses' response to this accusation is key for understanding what Jude is saying here in Jude verse 11. Moses says, Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? In other words, Moses is saying that in usurping the one that God has entrusted leadership to, Korah and those who are following him, are actually usurping God in rejecting the leadership of Moses and of Aaron. They're rejecting the leadership of God himself. 
And sure enough, the, the rest of the events of Numbers chapter 16 bear that out. This competition actually forms between Moses and Aaron and, and then Korah and those who are with him. And the ground opens up, swallows Korah and those who stood with him as a confirmation of God's presence with Moses and Aaron. And the connection here with Jude is, is, I think, obvious. Those people who reject the authority of the gospel reject the authority of the God of the gospel. That these people who reject the authority of those who have been entrusted with the message of the gospel in the church are rejecting Jesus, the Lord of the church. Jude's message is, is clear. Korah is a picture of rejecting authority. It's a picture of rejecting authority. And if I can be candid with you, I think this is, is a huge problem in the church in the United States. I think it's in part because of American exceptionalism, in part because of the hyper-individualism of our culture, in part of this, this anti-authoritarianism that, that is found in our culture, probably goes all the way at least back to the 60s, we don't like it when people tell us what to do. We have this natural aversion to authority. And in reality, that betrays a lack of trust in the sovereignty of God. If you trust that Jesus is sovereign, that he is the Lord over the church, do you believe that the Holy Spirit actually knows what he is doing? in the midst of affirming elders to lead the church. Now, there are times when those who are in positions of, of authority in the church where they reject the gospel either explicitly with their words or with their actions, and, and that needs to be addressed. But all too often, this heart of rejection, the authority, the assumption of the worst motives of those who are in positions of authority in the church is because we want things our way. We don't want people telling us what to do. And in Jude's day and age, there are these people that are, that are rejecting the authority of Jesus by rejecting his word, by rejecting the message of the gospel, by rejecting those who faithfully and diligently proclaimed it. And Jude says, I want you to be on guard against those types of people. And be on the lookout so you're not one of those people yourselves. So Jude gives these three pictures uh, of those who, who distort the gospel from the Old Testament, and then he transitions in, in 12 through 13 to this powerful imagery, six illustrations, six insights into what these people are actually like. No matter what they look like on the outside, this is what they look like, this is what they really are on the inside. We're just going to briefly look at these verses 12 through 13 once more. They are hidden, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. First image that Jude uses here, the first of six, is this language of hidden reef. Some of you might have a translation that says that these people are blemishes. Both uh, valid, I think that hidden reefs is a touch more accurate. What is being described here are these people that are in the midst of the church. They're not on the fringe. These are people who are gathering together at love feasts. 
Love feast is just this term that was used in the first century church for the meal, really the potluck, that took place the same time that the church gathered to celebrate communion. These are people who sit around the table with you. They laugh with you. They joke with others in the church. They're fearlessly feasting with others in the church with those who belong to Jesus. And Jude's language, similar to the language we used at the beginning of this morning, he says that they're hidden reefs. That if you aren't on the lookout for them, if you don't avoid them, that that will lead you to ruin. That these people who distort the faith will destroy your faith. That's our first insight. Jude gives us this right perspective. On the outside, they may look like they have their lives together. They may not look any different than anyone else, and yet they distort the faith. And that will destroy your faith. Next, he borrows language from the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 34, God condemns the leaders of the people of Israel for how they take advantage of those who have been entrusted to them. Ezekiel 34 says it this way, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep Apparently, these hidden reefs in the church weren't just a part of the church. Some of them were actually in positions of authority. And this term shepherd, very common one in the Bible to describe those who are in positions of leadership in God's people, is a powerful image because it's a picture of a servant, of someone who gives his life for those that he leads. But that's not the concern of those who distort the faith. Some will distort the faith out of selfishness some people will preach a false gospel especially if this false gospel is used to mask worshiping their own god of self the god of pleasure it's not rooted in a genuine care for others it's rooted in selfishness a third insight when he describes these people as waterless clouds swept along by the winds i want you to put yourselves in the shoes of someone who is living in the the first century in Judea, this primarily agricultural society, living in a dry climate. They don't get a lot of rain, and so they're very, very dependent upon rainfall, even more than we are here for crops in northwest Iowa. And if you were to see a cloud off in the distance, it would be, be an answer to prayer. It'd be a promise of water. It'd be water for your crops. It'd be the gift of food down the line. And yet for that cloud to pass by, completely waterless, would have been an empty promise. It would have been absolutely useless. And that's, again, the image that Jude is using here. He's saying that those who distort the faith in the church, they promise a whole lot, and yet they have no substance. They might promise a whole lot, and yet they have no substance. They might promise something more, but the reality is that they offer nothing. In fact, it wouldn't be stretching the metaphor, as we've already said, looking at other metaphors here, that they ruin in their wake. Destruction, because they contradict the gospel, and they promise something that they do not deliver fourth insight fourth picture here this fruitless trees in autumn 
twice dead, uprooted. Late autumn would have been the time in Judea when trees, you would expect the trees to have fruit on them. Rather than bearing fruit, however, these people, their lives are fruitless. What's more, he emphasizes their lostness by saying that they are twice dead, that they have been uprooted already. Here's his message. He's saying that those who distort the faith, they bear no fruit. Jesus reminds that those who bear fruit the expression of the Holy Spirit at work in you, that's one of the clearest pictures of belonging to him. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this, you, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus doesn't bear any illusion. He says that it is impossible for you to bear fruit without remaining faithful to him. Now, false teachers might show some numerical growth, but that's not the same thing as the power of the Spirit in the midst of the church bearing fruit. He says that those who distort the gospel bear no fruit. To understand Jude's fifth insight, we have to understand the, the ancient Israelite view of the sea. You and I, when we think of the sea, we might Think of um, a beautiful vacation on the beach, uh, a wonderful sunny time, not for those who lived in Israel. For the people of Israel, the sea was evil. It was a place of chaos. So when Jude says that they are wild waves of the sea, that's exactly, exactly what he's describing. He's not describing the surfer's dream. He's describing chaos. And that's what distorting the gospel does to the church. Those who distort the gospel cause chaos in the church it causes chaos in the church then the church will never not feel the pinch of those who preach a false gospel in their midst this perhaps more than anything else wreaks havoc in the church earlier this week my uh my three kids and i we were leaving our, our wednesday night kids ministry here and, and when we walked outside it was it was dark it wasn't it wasn't night but it was it was getting dark and um we got outside and my youngest he, he just turned three and he looks up at the sky and and we he's normally in bed by that time or at least he's not outside and he looks up out of the sky and says wow and he starts looking for stars and he was convinced that there was a star right over there now, it wasn't, it wasn't dark enough for there to be stars out yet. It was very clearly a plane. And yet he refused to believe me. Even by the time we got home, and that star was way over there, he refused to believe me that that was not a star and that that was a plane. In fact, he was referring to it as his first star ever. <laughs> yeah. Centuries ago, people didn't have to worry about confusing stars and airplanes, right? But sometimes people would confuse a star, something that stayed in place, with a planet, something that would move around in the sky. In fact, Jude's word wandering here is the root word for our word planet. Wandering is planetes in Greek. Now, a planet moves through the sky 
And, and if you are going to base your sense of direction off of that rather than off of a star, you will get lost. You will go astray. Stars are extremely helpful for keeping your way. And yet if you follow a wandering star, a planet, rather than a true star, you will get lost. And Jude says the same thing is true if you follow those who distort the gospel. If you use them for guidance, you will end up lost. A distorted faith will lead you astray. You see, a false gospel promises a lot. It doesn't matter if it's the false promises of the health and wealth gospel, saying that God wants you to be happy, wealthy, healthy, more than anything else. It doesn't matter if it's a false gospel that, that claims that God doesn't care what you believe as long as you're a good person. It doesn't matter if it's a false gospel that says grace means that you can do whatever you want because God will forgive you anyway. Those are false promises. They promise a lot, but they lead you astray. And that's why Jude's message is so crucial for us this morning. We have to be on guard. We have to be on guard against those who would distort the gospel through word and deed. To be on guard against those tendencies within our own hearts. I used language earlier of this war that takes place in our hearts between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. It's true within each and every one of us. There's this battle for the throne of our lives between God and self. And we have to be on guard against the temptation to distort the gospel, to make it something that we want to hear. Be on guard against those who distort the gospel in word and in deed. Who, who influences you? Many people who bear the name Christian and have huge platforms, massive platforms here in the United States as well as, as across the globe, they're peddling a false gospel. Let's cling to the true gospel, the beautiful gospel of what Jesus has done for us, that we would live a life of worship in response to him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the message of the gospel, and we thank you for this text. In your mercy, God, we ask that you would help us, that you would strengthen us to live lives of faithfulness to you, Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us about ways that we, we are tempted to follow the way of Cain, rejecting your word. The ways we are tempted to follow Balaam and his desires. The ways that we are tempted to reject your authority just like Korah. Help us, Jesus, to be faithful. To preserve the faith that you have entrusted to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.